political language, and with variations, this is true of all political parties, from conservatives to anarchists, is designed to make lies sound truthful and murder respectable, and to give an appearance of solidity to pure wind. George Orwell. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to Secrets of Saturn. On tonight's show, we have Scott Faust, a musician, an author, and an activist. Hello, Scott. Hello. It's a pleasure to have you here. Let's... You've been making a name for yourself on the internet. Let's, uh... Let's start with talking about who you are. Well, uh... I'm Scott Faust. I'm kind of, uh, rebellious in nature since I was young. I grew up in one of those quasi-religious households where, uh... My parents kind of picked out of the air their belief system and tried to push it down as dogma. And, uh... So through my youth, I kind of, I kind of got a sense that the adults weren't, you know, giving me the whole truth, and maybe they were a little full of it. And uh, you know, as time went on, I more and more realized that I was right, and it just kind of uh, formed me into a person that that fought the power, you know, through school. I um, I hated the way that school just wanted you to, you know, rote memorize everything, and and it didn't really focus on critical thinking. And, uh, and a lot of the stuff that I was studying outside of school on the same topics didn't jive with what they were teaching me. So pretty early on, I figured out that uh, I was being lied to, and it kind of <laughs> snowballed from there, you know? I think a lot of us uh, with this mindset have experienced very similar things. We notice that the system isn't quite what it comes off to be. I agree with that. <laughs> so, I know you... Uh, you gave me a nice introduction there, the musician, author, activist. I, um, you know, the music thing has always been a big part of it. Um, I remember in the 90s, I wrote a song called Change, and the chorus to that song said, when we say that we'll bring change, will we wait too long just to state that we'll bring change when we all spill blood? And uh, that's that's kind of been my mindset since the beginning. That makes a lot of sense. Uh, let's talk about that. Let's let's go into your musicianship. What uh, what got you started in that, and where that led you? I, you know, I was always into uh, you know rock bands and things from my brothers, and you know, in school, the people that I hung around with, uh, they turned out to be the uh, you know the drinkers and the druggies and the musicians and the uh, you know the badasses. So um, it was it was always like that for me, leading me. You know, so it wasn't a surprise when I turned 13 and I was singing for a band and then, you know, jumped into playing the guitar or taking some guitar lessons. And, you know, even there, I only took a few guitar lessons because I figured out that I could teach myself more and faster. And uh, that kind of went into all things, even after school with, you know, philosophy, psychology. I taught myself guitar, bass, drums, vocals, how to harmonize, all these things that most people have to go through some kind of training for. I just kind of picked it up on my own and taught myself. And uh, and it's worked for me so far. So, so would you say uh, creating music was your first endeavor to start being... To make you who you are, uh, channeling your thoughts, feelings, emotions into song, and then getting that voice out into the world. 
Absolutely. I was writing songs before I could play the guitar well enough. I mean, I had a couple of chords, maybe three chords, and I was already writing the songs to get out the lyrics, to get out, you know, the things that I that I felt. And, uh, you know, my songs were, they were never about, like, poppy kind of things. They were already, it, it was more of a, of a heavy, kind of deep, passionate kind of lyric. And when all did you start doing this? Um, when I was 13. And it just it went on through the '90s. The '90s was a it, it was a fantastic time for me, playing in little rat hole bars and being on stage and just you know I was always the rebel man, insulting 300 people from from behind a microphone on underneath a bunch of lights. <laughs> so, did you get anywhere with it? Did you do anything? Any releases? What did you do with your music? You know, we ended up doing a few. You know, fully albums. There was a lot of demo work, a lot of playing live. We were dealing with some uh, record companies, but you know, in the end, I ended up needing to get a real job. It wasn't—I uh, guess it wasn't timely at the time. A lot of the stuff that was uh, that was coming out post '90s wasn't quite what I was doing. And through the '90s, we were we were a little too young and a little too crazy to really to really uh, make that happen. Well, the 90s seemed to be the, the end of the old way of doing things because after that you had the internet generation really kick off and it really just changed the entire platform of the music business, really. In the early 2000s, you saw the music industry freaking out over downloading and how all the digital rights were going to be. Some things that they still you know, aren't quite happy about, but I mean, it's, it's an accepted norm now. But um, the 90s really, because I remember this, it was the last of the way things used to be. You know, just get out there, sell your demo tape or whatever it is, play as many shows as possible, pre, pre-internet. pre You know, it wasn't even just the music. The 90s was the last taste, the last piece that we had of the world that guys like you and I are from. Like now, post 9-11, this isn't our world anymore. Like we knew a freedom that these kids that were, you know, even in school when 9-11 happened and they were locked in, like they will never – will never know that the the rebellious attitude that people had in the 90s you know that they still had uh, a taste for for human rights and you know to uh to demand that they got what they deserved and that <laughs> seemed to die after, it seemed to die after 9-11 and and i mean it, it it happened fast and then gradually got worse where the spirit of not only america but you see the spirit of the world is broken and people they don't stand up anymore. You know, that's interesting that you point that out because uh, obviously you're an activist now uh, rebelling against just a lot of the corruption that's very noticeable these days. Many people, young and old, they really see that things just aren't the way they used to be. Um, I'm all around a lot of younger people and I notice that they just – they're not quite the same mentality that a lot of people who are uh, – or who were adults pre-9-11 – you know, I get a lot of flack when I talk to the, the younger people because I, I I let them know I think that they're weak and fearful, <laughs> and uh, I I honestly believe that. Like in the '90s, there were still people that were willing to die for what they believed, or at least get locked up for a while. And now these kids wouldn't give up their Starbucks for something they they believed in. You know, I'm pretty sure that, uh, and, I, and I don't have any proof for this. But I feel that people are afraid to like some of my posts on the internet because they feel that by liking them, they're going to take some flack. 
Well, I, I see a big mix. I see a lot of people that pretty much they're on the internet just talking about absolutely nothing, posting pictures of what they're having for dinner. Or you get a lot of people who are reposting a lot of memes. Um, unfortunately, a lot of it's preaching to the choir. A true yes. activism that you know really started in this with the '60s counterculture movement. That was groups of people by word of mouth would spread, and all of a sudden you had a protest. Uh, a lot of times, which would end violently, with the police and or military coming in to, to suppress it. But those people were ticked off about whatever it happened to be. It was usually the Vietnam War, because you or your buddy might be the one getting the draft card, and you're not too happy about that. Because even back then, a lot of people recognized that Vietnam was an unjust war. They couldn't justify what they were doing, what they were, why they would be going through all this, why they, why is this country even over there? Um, and the boogeyman threat of communism thing really didn't even settle well with everybody. And I guess that kind of carried over all the way up into the 90s, like you said, because even I remember this. And and then things changed. Yeah. I, I think the last real acts of defiance that I can remember were probably the L.A. riots and Waco, Texas, when the Branch Davidians stood up against the ATF and the FBI. You know, For whatever their reasons were and however poorly they handled it, that was true defiance at its best. It was. Uh, I think there's a lot of things that went on with that that we'll probably never know in the public. But driving tanks into where children are eh, doesn't sit well with me. Yeah, not myself either. You know, we have we have this gun grab that that's uh, being attempted now, and uh, you know they're they're using things like this uh, <clears throat> Fast and Furious with the. Uh, with the guns going to Mexico and showing up at the cartels to try and, you know, build a case to be able to take the guns. And, uh, and, and in Waco, Texas, I mean, that was, that was what it was about, and it, that went very poorly for them. Uh, the way that everything has gone since then, I, I don't think it would go that poorly for anybody now. You know, I see these people on the internet, and they're, they're bragging about their, their guns, and they're shooting them off in the woods and things, and they're so happy to have them, and they'd use them. And I just have this doubt. Because these are people that, you know, they go to work every day and their debts have them afraid, you know, to step out of the box. Uh, you know, I, I get myself into trouble sometimes still with my mouth and with my actions, I, you know. And I don't, see, I don't see these people with the same kind of fire. Uh, I, I see a lot of people that are just they, – they think that saying something on Facebook or posting a meme is, uh, is an act of defiance. And it's, it's really – it's the smallest. I mean, the truth movement has has come so far where now everybody pretty much knows everything. Weird Al just did a song where the whole last verse is about you know the truth movement. He goes into a lot of things. He's wearing a tinfoil hat at the end. Like it's it's hilarious and it's fantastic. You know, so if it's as mainstream as Weird Al is doing something about it, the information is pretty much out there. Now we need to actually do something about it. You know, posting something on the internet is not doing something. I made my bones with the National Defense Authorization Act of 2012. I went crazy when that happened with the language. Indefinitely detain American citizens until the end of a conflict. The conflict <laughs> we're in is in the war on terror. The war on terror doesn't have any foreseeable end. And I know me, like a lot of these people on the internet that are posting stuff, they're not at risk to get locked up in Guantanamo Bay. I don't know. Some of the things that I say and some of the things that I do, I could be one of the guys in Guantanamo Bay with that language. 
And, uh, you know, I was working with the ACLU. I'm working with We Are Change in uh, northeastern Pennsylvania. And I was doing a lot of call-ins to the radio show because I, I had the time to do it while I was at my job. And I was on there a lot. And I had done so much that when Lou Barletta was on the air touching on the, Nor- the National Defense Authorization Act of 2012 and I called in. He refused to take my call because he knew who I was because I (laughs) – on the internet and on the radio told everybody how they voted on everything. And I mean he – I'm sure he read on the internet that I I pointed out that there were actually two motions to change the language that were voted down. And I knew how he voted on both of those and he voted no. He voted it down to have the language changed. So him on the radio pitted up against me. He knew better. Because he was talking about how you know they're working on changing the language. My question would have absolutely been there were two motions put forth during the voting to change the language of that in that specific section to not say that you could indefinitely detain American citizens. And you specifically voted no on both of those motions. And did he know personally who you were after uh, – assumingly you've called in numerous times that he was picking up on this? I didn't just call in. I was working with the ACLU, and a lot of letters were sent, and I did a lot of rabble-rousing and posting on specific people's Facebooks like specific radio show hosts and specific congressmen and senators so everybody knew who I was. That's that's the way you start some shit. Excuse my language. But it's you know preaching to the choir isn't how you do it. you got to get some people mad at you. And afraid to talk to him in public, then you know you're doing something. Do you think that uh, Lou Barletta all, overall is a decent politician, or do you think he's just a very typical? I'm here because I want to make myself some serious money and go along with the program. <laughs> well, I, he actually made national news for being the mayor of a little podunk town called Hazelton, where. He went on such a racist rampage as to try and get you know people who couldn't they, they actually couldn't rent in Hazleton and the federal government had to say no you can't do that because he he made his bones with racism with just attacking a class of people you know if you look up genocide in Britannica it actually it, it doesn't just mean to kill one group of people it means you know to damage them emotionally even and uh, and what he did in hazelton is actually considered genocide under the britannica definition <laughs> and what was the resolution of that little situation well, he became a congressman so do you think there was some dirty pool going on like ah this guy sees things the way we like them to be done absolutely absolutely there's no doubt in my mind i mean you always you look back with a lot of the Big, especially the bigger politicians, and you see that they're road scholars and God only knows, skull and bones. They always have these ties. They all know each other. They all come from similar backgrounds. I don't know anything about Lou Barlett off the top of my head, but uh, maybe if he wasn't one of those, they just saw like, hey, this is somebody we could, uh, we could definitely get to play ball on our team. Here's the beautiful thing about growing up in Pennsylvania. we, Our last governor, Ed Rendell, right? You might know him as the governor of Pennsylvania who brought the, you know, the casinos and, and everything into Pennsylvania where now the grocery stores here could sell beer and things like that and all these tax dollars. Uh, 
with the gas companies, once once he brought them all in and we're the only state that doesn't charge them these specific taxes that every other state does, when he left office, he joined the lobbying group for the gas companies. Now, here's the thing that I didn't know until recently when I was watching a documentary on HBO, but way back in the day in Philadelphia, and this is this is like 20 years before he destroyed the Philadelphia school systems when he was you know, a politician out that way. Uh, he actually was involved in, in setting up a reporter on a life sentence for killing a cop where they actually have the judge on record as saying, I'm going to help these people fry this nigger. So, I mean, you, you, if you follow these politicians all the way back and you're lucky enough to get you know the real story on them, yeah, it goes back to the beginning. You don't get to be a big name in politics by being a nice guy. <laughs> now, you mentioned We Are Change, which is an organization started some years ago by Luke Radowski from uh, New York. Uh, how much activity did you see with them? Uh, you know, I I wasn't as involved with them as I would have liked to be. I mean, the North uh, the, uh, the National Defense Authorization Act of 2012. I mean, I was involved with them somewhat. Uh, I know that they they were much more involved in the 9/11 stuff with uh, you know going up to congressmen and showing them the proof that there was uh, that there was explosives that were found, you know, inside of the the rubble and all of that and. Uh, but mine, mine was mostly the National Defense Authorization Act. So, what other waves did you make there? You were saying about calling in radio stations, talk show hosts. Who all did you uh, get on, and what kind of what kind of trouble did you cause? I, you probably wouldn't know the Podunk guys out out here, but uh, a guy who's been very popular out here named Steve Corbett. He actually uh, hung up on me. He <laughs> hung up on me because I was making my point, and I wasn't. I wasn't pointing to you know Alex Jones or Infowars. I was saying go to Europa.org, you know, go to the European Union's official site, go to this military website where you could find this document that's thirty pages that's about the civilian inmate labor program, you know. And, and I, it didn't go over so well. He hung up on me, so I called back. And I guess his producer thought it would be funny to put him on the spot and put me back on the phone with him. And I was like, I was like, why'd you hang up on me, Steve? Is that how you handle your debates? And he got quiet. I was quiet for a second because I thought he hung up on me again. And it was like ten or fifteen seconds. It was a long pause. He's like, he's like, well, I was like, oh, I thought you hung up on me again. And uh, you know, the, the rest of the the rest of the conversation didn't go that well either because he didn't want me to quote any websites, even though they were reputable government websites. He didn't want to hear any about that. He's like, "Give me proof." It's like, "I well, I would if you would let me talk," but he kept cutting me off. And uh, you, you kind of know that you're winning the argument when somebody's either cutting you off or they change the argument. I mean, that's that's a chapter in my book, and it's a I think it's one of the most important chapters. And you know, forgive me for dropping a little bit more foul language on your radio show, but it's called the douchebag fallacies, and it deals with logic, logical fallacies. Go ahead and explain that a little bit. That actually sounds interesting. Uh, you know, I I wanted to bring the subject of logic, especially the the red herring fallacies, to people who maybe don't have you know the stomach for listening to a boring lecture or reading you know a boring philosophy book. So I kind of take you know these these arguments, lo- logical arguments. You know they have to be sound, and and most people when they argue 
they argue completely in fallacies. Like if you watch a presidential debate, most of those answers are just fallacies. They they're not sound arguments. They're not even they're not even relevant. They're, they're also scripted stupid. answers for the most part. Yeah, well, absolutely. You know, that's it. that's the study of logic is to not be stupid and everything that these politicians say is just stupid and people I'm sorry, in America they aren't smart enough to know. Yeah, I mean there's kind of this this big pretend, you know, where yeah, that's that's a real answer. No, it's not. I mean, you know, a lot of what George W. Bush used is a fallacy known as appeal to belief, you know, or you know, God made me president and and God this and God that. And it's it's all appeal to belief and it's it's a logical fallacy. I mean, this logic goes way back, you know, into the BC, you know, people people like Aristotle and uh and today, nobody, nobody gets it. It's a, it's a lost art. I, that's, I have fun debating people because I, I, a lot of the stuff that they say, I'll point out, that's not even a sound argument. You know what you just said there doesn't make any sense. That's not even an argument. It's not even valid. Now, when you say debating people, do you mean on a one-on-one -on -one basis, or I know you're active on uh, some Facebook pages and things like that? Yeah, I, I like to go into groups, and I mean they. They might call it trolling, but it's not so much trolling as I like to challenge people's beliefs. And I, you know, I think that's really a good place to start with most people is to challenge them, to say, no, I think you're wrong, and here are the exact reasons why, and here is the proof that I have, and, and that's logic, and try to bring them down this reasonable path to finding, you know, for themselves trying to kind of lead the horse to water and hope that it drinks. And I do that a lot, like in and in small debates with people, whether it be about religion or politics or or whatever the topic is, you know, I, I find that to to keep my mind alive, and it and it in turn helps me to write. It helps me. A, a lot of the stuff that I am putting in the book right now actually comes from conversations that I've had with people, whether it's in Facebook groups or whether it's conversations with friends over the internet or on the phone. Some of the best quotes that I've come up with have come out spontaneously in a conversation with a friend. Hmm. Now let's talk about the book you're writing. Why are you writing a book? Uh, what's it actually going to all be about? The essence of the book is to reach people with information they wouldn't normally get. A lot, a lot of people, they can't, I said it before, they can't sit and read a philosophy book. They'll get bored, you know? And I, I want to take information like the red herring fallacies and some, some concepts about spiritual principles. Like I wrote something called Spiritual Dynamics. I thought I had this fantastic, like, nugget of wisdom, this awesome philosophical view. And I started studying Aristotle, and I realized that he had done almost the exact same thing 2,300 years ago, you know? So I want to kind of take take that kind of information and give it to people that don't have the attention span for, you know, a boring lecture by some old man. I want to bring in some aspects of one of my heroes is George Carlin. He was a comedian. <laughs> but some of the stuff that he, well, most of the stuff that he would say was just like biting and it was real. And, you know, he was he was attacking religion. He was attacking people's overprotection of children, like things that were taboo when he was doing it. And he's part of the reason why a lot of that's not taboo anymore. Because not only would he tell you, but he'd drop an F-bomb while he was telling you. He'd sound really angry while he was telling you, and he'd never apologize. 
And that's what I want my book to embody is that unapologetic truth but in a way that your every man could understand because I'm not you know one of these academians I'm not one of these guys that's going to sit down and be able to you know run you through this whole boring lecture like I got fired you know I got I got an animal inside of me and that animal wants to tell you something so you might not get you know every bit that you would out of one of those lectures by an old man but you're going to get enough of it you know that it might fire you up and that's what I want to do. Sounds like you're drawing from influences new and old to kind of bring it to the forefront of what's going on today. Absolutely. Well, let's do a rundown of your book. What's, start from the beginning. What, what exactly you're trying to – what is the message you're trying to get across? You know, a lot of it, it starts with the lies we've been told about religion, and, you know, that really touches on conditioning because a lot of people in the United States are Christians simply because their parents brought them up to be that way. They were conditioned, more or less brainwashed to be Christian. They never really look into it. Uh, you know, people never look to see what's real about the Bible. They just kind of take it at face value, and I kind of examine that. I go into philosophy especially with you know the fallacies that's going to be you know a big part of the book that's like a real passion for me you know i go into the spiritual dynamics where i talk about you know there's uh you know i'd actually like to get into this a little bit more with you with uh you know like the difference between anxiety patience and stagnancy there's when it when there's actually like a balance with something you know that that you're doing like if you have patience you're you're at a balance now when you get anxiety that's more or less like to the excessive point of that same you know that same principle and then stagnancy is the deficiency of that same principle and it goes through you know a lot of spiritual principles like a lot of uh you know just human principles in that way to kind of study them and show where we fall short and where we go too far so we can try and find that balance i kind of i kind of look at it as a graphic equalizer on a uh, on your stereo or you know on the mix of a band you, you need to you need to kind of hone the different sounds the different instruments to the different frequencies and that's the same way that we are as humans we need to hone our principles the way that we're doing things our actions our behaviors need to be you know brought into a balance and you know the only way that i know to do that is not instinctively it's to do it through understanding yourself and understanding the principles themselves and i try and do it in you know, the same kind of way that I bring the fallacies to people, you know, with that fire and that bite and that excitement. And, you know, not the, not the boring old guy standing behind a podium talking all monotone like Ben Stein telling you about economics. <laughs> so what is it you actually want to get through to people? So it sounds like you put a lot of thought into this and you've experienced a lot of things and this is the culmination of a lifetime of efforts and experiences. What is it you want to inspire in others that would – chance be reading the book courage you know the knowledge that leads to courage to weed out this weakness this fear that's been bred into this generation this generation i'm actually terrified that this generation is responsible for my freedom my personal freedom is in the hands of a bunch of pussies and i want to change that i want a revolution of the mind an intellectual revolution and for people to understand that 
you know, preaching to the choir is not taking action. Whether whether it reaches the point of violence or whether it just reaches the point of, you know, I, I, let's look at Atlas Shrugged. You know, the whole point of that book is at the end, you know, all of the, the, the creative people just walk away from their jobs and just say, hey, society, what now? What are you going to do? All the people that were making money off the fruits of our labor, now you got nothing. You know, I mean, maybe that's a part of it. But to do something, people are too fearful to walk away from their jobs. They got student loans they have to pay. You know, they have to pay for their kids to eat. And the money's becoming less and less and less because we're being put on, you know, third world wages. And that's by design. Well, it's pretty obvious that they've been slowly but surely cutting things down yet jacking them up. Absolutely. And I think debt slavery is a fair way to put it. People are afraid. Uh, we don't see bread lines like you would have in the 1930s depression, but there's sure are a lot of people on food stamps right now. And here's the thing and that I've thought about many, many times, especially if I happen to be in a grocery store, and I pay attention just to see how many people whip out that card. What would our society, modern 21st century United States of America, look like if they those cards didn't get mailed or, well, if they didn't get their monthly uh, stipend put on it? We'd have bread lines going crazy and probably more so than back then because people today have this expectation of being taken care of. I think that's the one thing that would make the world – make America at least look like a zombie apocalypse. If you took away people's food stamps, I mean it, it, people are freaking out already. Uh, this uh, Medicare is being cut and Social Security benefits. And just a lot of things, and it's starting to cause a lot of pressure. And you can see people starting to get angry. And I think that once that that last straw drops, you know, I think a lot of these people that are afraid aren't going to have any reason to be afraid anymore because you know it's going to have the big bad is going to have happened, and and that's when things are going to go really wrong. And I think it's going to look like the L.A. riots. And I think it's going to look like Waco, Texas. And I, I don't think it's going to be bread lines. I think it's going to be you know bodies lined up in body bags on the side of the road. I think it's going to be people throwing bodies you know, onto piles because they can't bury them because they can't keep up with the body count. And who do you think is going to be doing that sort of thing? Who's, who do you think the people are going to – who do you think the, is going to be committing the violence? If it's not handled right, it's going to be the poor. And do you think things are being set up to possibly allow that to happen or be guided to happen? You know, I think that the idea behind it is is more or less, you know, like control out of chaos, but I think that I think that if it's done wrong or if people actually, you know, get some guts it's it's gonna go bad. It's gonna go really bad, and and that's why like I'm a, I, I'm I'm really for us taking care of it now rather than when it gets to that point. Like it, it'd take a lot less you know violence now to handle stuff, a lot less civil disobedience now than when people were just you know ripping people out of government offices and beating them to death. Like that's what they did in the L.A. riots. Like they they didn't like that the, the cops who got uh, they got off for beating Rodney King. They didn't like that, so they were ripping anybody who wasn't black out of vehicles and beating them to death. 
I think 24 or 26 people died and it was it was all you know misguided rage and and that's what it'll get to it'll get to the misguided rage I mean a controlled rage is always better than people just going all shenanigans and what do you think they'll be raging about be raging about the fact that they can't feed their kids I mean it's getting to that point now so you think that the lower class if as as they're often called would be getting angry because things have uh, basically got to the point where there aren't enough resources yeah you take enough off people and you leave them no choice now do you think that this is just people can't work a job enough to bring in the income or are you referring more to the uh, the people who expect there to be a welfare system set up so they don't have to do anything both. I mean, there's single mothers out there that are working at, you know, fast food restaurants that are making, you know, less than half of what it takes to have a one bedroom apartment. And, you know, they have a kid or two. If, if you take their food stamps off of them, you've basically left them to starve. And, you know, there's, there's not enough there's not enough people out there to be able to help them nowadays, even if people kind of congregated together. You know, there's just – there's too little out there for these people. And if you get them to the point of where that minimum wage job isn't even enough for their little rat hole apartment and for the ramen noodles and the spaghetti that they're eating every day, then people are going to be angry enough to start killing people. What do you think will be the catalyst that finally gets them there? I I really I've been hearing a lot of rumors that uh, that the food stamps are going to stop that they're going to be cut dramatically, and you know I haven't looked into it mostly because I just kind of I don't want to get into that I don't even want to get into that you know I don't want to when you start talking about poverty you get into way too many variables and what I do know is that if that happens this this country is going to fall to the ground and i don't think that our police forces and even our national guard will be able to contain it i don't think they'll have enough bullets since we're discussing uh the lower class and welfare what do you think about what's going on right now with all these immigrants that are being literally shipped into the united states down through the texas border I think it has to be done on purpose. I mean, the whole point of of politics is to it's to create pressure from above and from below. I mean, that's why you have your communist party and your fascist party, and one's above and one's below, and it's trying to funnel people. A lot of these things that we see in the news that we think are totally unrelated are just funneling tactics to get people where they want them to be. But I think that when you're dealing with the majority of people, when you think about how many people are living in poverty, if you take that last bit off them that's keeping them from flipping out and killing you, it's a slippery slope. You're playing a very dangerous game. I completely agree. Do you foresee that there would be a breaking point sometime in the near future because they're shipping in quite a few people from what I understand, thousands? Yeah, I'm I'm absolutely ready for a revolution. I see it coming. I, I think that what we have to do right now is prepare ourselves for the fact that we're going to have to fight. So all these all these fearful, you know, little Starbucks drinking pussies are going to have to stand up eventually because it's getting too bad. It, it's going to come to the point of where you have to stand up. 
And is this the point behind your book is to try and get these people inspired? Absolutely. Absolutely. Do you think there's going to be a point, a line that gets crossed where they finally say, you know what? This guy's right. Yeah. If, if, if people actually don't get too offended by the book and they actually don't uh, you know, dismiss it, I think that they'll see that the stuff that I'm talking about is actually it's real. And it's, it's more of the bare bones kind of example, but it's, it's the truth. We're going to have to fight. It's coming to that because, I mean, all of our rights are being taken away. And the, the rebellious spirit of America has been – it seems to have died. I'm hoping that it's just dormant. When you say fight, fight whom? We're going to have to fight the government. We're going to have to fight the people that are oppressing us. I mean it's obvious that we're, you know, we're being oppressed right now. If anybody can't see that, I mean it's, it's not even at the point now where people think that that's just a dream. You know, like the, the illusion isn't as thick as it used to be. People know that it's getting bad. I mean, you got a president who signed into law, you know, a defense act that says that he could indefinitely, we can indefinitely detain our own people, you know, in, in a prison that's not even in America. I mean, that's, that's one of the signs. I mean, he's just waving a pen and, and overrunning Congress. I mean, our forefathers talked about this stuff, and you'll see it in memes, but even the the dumbest person on this planet can't watch, you know, the the national news and think that oh yeah everything's cool, you know it's it's still fine. This is this is the way that a democracy is supposed to work. Yeah, uh, no, no, it's, nobody can tell me that. Anybody who could tell me that you know the last the last few presidents weren't working on the same exact agenda, well they just haven't watched any of the news. I mean, even guys like Bill Maher that are that are just full of it for the most part, I mean, they have to acknowledge enough of these facts that I can at least stomach the show. Well, I think a lot of the people, uh, what would you call them, the common folk, I think they're still buying into it to a point. They're still just going about their daily lives. Um, they may kind of notice that, hey, things aren't quite what they used to be, but they're still sticking their hands up and going into the scanners at the airport, and they're just watching the evening news and carrying on. They're paying their bills, they're getting their mortgage, they're getting married, having kids, and they're paying their bills and dying. You know, a lot of this, a lot of this pressure is coming from the corporations too. You know, when you're on a phone call with customer service and you have a problem now, it's basically the FU attitude. And they'll just kind of giggle at you if you get a little bit loud with them because they have all the power. And, uh, you know, I think people, I think people notice more than they're willing to admit that things have changed. I think they're taking it right now because they feel they have to and they haven't lost enough to be willing to fight, to feel that, you know, I've had enough. And I think the I've had enough is coming. And I think that, you know, watching these gas companies poison the water. I mean, I live maybe maybe an hour from Dimmick. Dimmick's water is flammable. And, you know, there's Gasland 1 and Gasland 2, which are documentaries that show you that, you know, they knew that the concrete around these wells was only one inch thick and 50% of them failed immediately. And not... 
not to even count the ones that failed over a 20-year period. So it wasn't a matter of whether these chemicals were going to migrate. It was where they were going to migrate and when. So flammable water, I think, has, you know, I think those people, those people kind of know. And I think anyone who has seen it, when, when you can, uh, when you could set your water on fire, it's really hard to be in denial about the kind of things that are going on in this in this day. But it seems like, like I'm not even familiar with that particular town. These things aren't getting out there enough. You know, hey, this town's water is flammable. It seems like nobody cares. Yeah, it does seem like nobody cares, and that goes back to what I think about <laughs> your your everyday man and and where his strength is. Okay, go on with that. I just think that I think that we've gotten fat and lazy and coddled, and you know we're, we're people look at the government and the corporations as their their parents now. You know, like they they give us. You know what they're going to give us, and sometimes we'll get a spanking if we get out of line. <laughs> and I think, I think that that's what your every man has in his head. You know that that they're they're children. I, I think that there's really like a a, a a a child's mentality to to the world in this day and age. Like people are afraid of getting a spanking from the government or from the corporations. You know, if you don't if you don't pay your bill, your electric will get shut off. And I forget which state it was in, but somebody was living off the grid with solar panels, and they condemned their house. So you can't live off the grid. Because they wouldn't allow it? They won't allow it, no. They want you on the grid. They want you paying money to these corporations. They, can, they control you. Yeah, you can't be off the grid. They, you know, they don't, if you don't have a line going to your house, your house is not fit for human habitation. I've heard that before. Now, how far do you think the corporate control goes into government? Let's just use the United States government as an example. Well, look at what what lobbying does. I mean, the corporations completely control our government now. It's it's absolute. Look at the things that have gone on where no CEOs or or high higher management have have gotten any kind of charges against them. The corporation gets a fine that that is like pennies to them. Well, usually the fines are uh, very small percentages compared to the money they made doing whatever ghastly thing it was that they did. Absolutely. So it looks to the public like, hey, we spanked them down. In reality, it was chump change, and they still made very hefty profits. Yeah. Look what happened with the uh, with the housing market, the housing bubble. I mean that – if you look into that, there's actually another documentary called Inside Job that's hosted by uh, – it's actually narrated by Matt Damon. And it goes into all that. I mean I don't want to get into it now, but what they did was just use use the laws, all of the, the deregulation that went on over a 20-year period through through Reagan and, and beyond that, you know, even into, into Clinton and George W. Bush. They used that to make the most money that they could. They were – betting against mortgages. The companies that were selling people mortgages were betting against those mortgages and making money that way. That's why these that's why these institutions went belly up because so many mortgages went bad that there was no money to pay on the insurances that they had bought to cover them against the debts. So all all kinds of, you know, uh, corporate people made money 
while your everyman went bankrupt and lost everything. And then the government bailed them out and they go and they just give bonuses to everybody. I mean, this this country, if you really look at it, what we should be doing, and I'm going to tread carefully here, theoretically what we should do is just go to these companies and drag their CEOs and, you know, their favorite couple of cronies out, put them on their knees and execute them in the street in front of everybody else watching out the windows because that's how bad it's gotten with the corporations. Now, do you think it's really gotten that bad with these corporations? Absolutely. If you look at what happened with the vitamin industry, these supplements, they uh, they were making a lot of money pushing out the, the supplements that aren't actually regulated by the FDA. All they have to do is put the ingredients that they have in it on the label and, and they can claim any health benefits that they want. And it's not regulated like prescription drugs. And uh, they tried to put a bill through that would regulate that a little more. The FDA was pushing for that. And the industry went and bought themselves two senators. And now I don't have the, the powers of memory to be able to remember the two senators' names, but you could Google them pretty easily. And uh, and they made sure that it didn't happen. I mean the lobbying groups had Mel Gibson do a commercial saying you wouldn't be able to get your vitamin C without a prescription and all this. But uh, but really what it was about is that even today when, when they independent labs check these supplements, they find that the ingredient that they claim – to have in it isn't even there, you know. It could be sand, but it's it's not the <laughs> ingredient they say. And so they bought they bought these these two senators, and the senators made sure it didn't go through back then. And then twenty years later, just recently, these same two senators are making sure that it's not going through now. They're they're saying the same things, you know. And these guys, you know, theoretically, if we're gonna do you know do what what would actually would actually be right and, and just in a lot of people's eyes would be to drag them out in the street, put them on their knees and shoot them in front of the cameras too because these are the people that are ruining, ruining the Americans' life. These are the people that stole the American dream. These are – and it's, it's sad that it's only 1% of the people that are living the American dream because 99% are just so docile and stupid that they don't stand up to it. I mean there's a lot that, that we could do. To stop this, you know, but it, there's there's no consequences for these people. They laugh it off. I mean, what do they get put on camera and made fun of, like Doctor Oz about what they say? You know, I mean, that's that's about it. What do they get? What do they get? One out of their five hundred million dollars fined? You know, it's it's that's not a consequence. You know, even if just a guy like me watched walked up and just punched one of them in the face every once in a while. I mean, that might put enough fear into them that they'd think twice about doing some of the dirty things that they do. But nobody's punching them in the face. You know, nobody's putting them in a chicken wing or a full Nelson or body slamming them on the street. You know, like people people could walk right into the chambers just off of Congress and attend attend some of these meetings if they cram their way into it because they keep it in small rooms. But you could go in and just punch somebody in the face, but nobody's doing it because here's here is the one big thing that bothers me is that people aren't willing to do time for their beliefs, to stand up for their lives, to stand up, you know, against oppression. They're not willing to die anymore for it. I mean the Black Panthers, I'll give them a lot of credit, man. They had gumption. And People don't have that nowadays. I mean, even some of the, the extremist groups are kind of pathetic. I mean, I, I these neo Nazis these days, like I'd fight them. 
You know, they're not they're not the neo Nazis of old. You know, the Black Panthers. You don't hear anything from groups like that anymore. I mean, you got people that are just hiding, playing. You know playing guns out in the woods like let's let's go play gi joe out in the woods and shoot some targets and drink some beers and that's that's the difference between the 60s and and even the 90s to an extent and now we're not we're not willing to put consequences on our government the forefathers talked about you have to keep your government in check and that's why they wanted the right to bear arms you know they they i i I forget what the quote is but it's that you know they have the right to, to bear arms to, to keep their government in check. Like oftentimes it will be our own government that does this to us. There's plenty of quotes from the Founding Fathers discussing, we gave you this great experiment if you can keep it. Yeah, I'm not much of a Benjamin quote Franklin. guy. I'm more of a fire and fist guy. So, so all right – the whole idea here is that you're looking to inspire with your book. Um, what's the next step for you? What What are you gonna? When do you think it'll be done? And what are you gonna take uh, as your next step? Right now, I'm looking into literary agents to see if I want to go, you know, that route and go through a publishing house, uh, or if I want to self-publish, or if I want to e-publish. You know, I've since well, my first job when I was 17 was working. Working with books, working in a bindery and a printery, and uh, and and later on, I went back to that and I worked in the digital print uh, sector of publishing. And uh, I'm not sure which way exactly I want to go with it. I'm sure it'll be multifaceted in the end, but I'm not sure if I want to keep all of it by self-publishing or if I want to go through one of the bigger houses. And I, I mean that'll depend on how much interest I have with them, and uh, I guess how much I push the envelope on the First Amendment. Well, this would be my big question is do you think you could get a big publishing house willing to take on a uh, volatile topic that you're pretty much on about the entire book? Well, absolutely. I mean the Satanic Verses got published and Salman Rushdie had, had you know a price on his head from Muslim countries. I mean that's that's kind of the point with a lot of the stuff that I'm saying in this book. Like I might be lucky enough to get a price put on my head. So I think that that would be really attractive to a publishing house. Well, that sounds like it just gets you a whole bunch of attention. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, what, what I'm saying is real, but the way I say it tends to get attention, and I think I got that going for me. So maybe it'll be a big publishing house rather than doing it myself. You know, we were discussing between the 90s and then uh, pre-9-11, post-9-11. What do you think exactly changed because of that? And what is it – because you lived through that time as an adult – what is it that you want to uh, say in the book that's going to try and put some of that fire back in into people? The truth is, is that nine eleven happened, and the you know the large buildings like that falling to the ground the way that they did in the middle of New York City instilled a fear into people that they had never seen before because i lived you know and and you through the cold war you know we remember you know at at any point in time i mean it was taught to us in school that they could fire off the nukes and we'd all be toast but what if what if a nuke actually went off in new york city i mean i mean that's what happened with 9-11 is basically the nightmare came true and it changed the way that people thought. And then they rushed in the Patriot Act and they started a war on terror and they created all these boogeymen. 
and and just the level of fear escalated to a point of where people's minds can barely handle it. Well, it seems it's like almost passe at this point. People just accept that you go to the airport, you have to take your shoes off, you have to take your belt off, you have to go through a scanner. And a few people, myself being one of them, will opt out. And what happens to me? I got to get felt up by some creepy dude. Dr. Coldfinger. Dr. Coldfinger, <laughs> yes. Yeah, I mean, that's it. We're, we're not just... We're not just afraid of the the boogeyman. We're afraid of the police. You know, like I've seen, you see the videos where you know a cop in Texas or or North Carolina is just beating a woman like an MMA fighter on the ground. And why do you think and that is? Why do you think because they can Right, but what do you think inspires someone to want to go in the police force? Who's the kind of person who would beat an old woman? Well, yeah, I mean, there's there's certain there's. There's certain jobs that that attract certain kinds of people. I mean, it's it's not an accident that there was so much child molestation with the Catholic Church. I mean, when you got a vow of celibacy, what better place for you know a pedophile or a gay person to hide than some place where they don't have to explain why they don't have a wife or a girlfriend? You know, I mean, that's why that's why homosexuals were so attracted to it because you know they were afraid of what society would think of them because they've been you know just brutalized throughout history you know and i mean that that was a good hiding place for them you know and and, and pedophiles found that to be great too and it worked out well for them because the catholic church covered it up so of course you got you know guys going into jobs like prison guard and and police because they're power hungry and and they want to feel above people and it's you know, it's deficiencies within them that draw them to that line of work. And it's, I mean, it's not, that's, that's one of the simpler things to explain. That's not really complicated. No, I, that's exactly what it is. And the thing is, cover up seems to be the uh, repeated theme here. You know, dreadful things are happening. Well, cover it up. We're making money. Absolutely. All right. So again, though, why do you think that uh, the post 9-11 mentality of the younger generation is different? What do you think is different about them growing up, accepting that this thing happened and this is just the way things are? Everything has escalated to the point of where the controls are so much. I mean the, 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 the debt factor is a big deal. People are afraid of quitting their jobs. But I mean you can't – I mean – the school shootings now. There's you know there's so much anti-violence. You can't even have like a, a, a fist fight in a school without being expelled and going to jail. You know, going to a juvenile facility. And I mean, out here in Pennsylvania, I actually live in Luzerne County, where we had kids for cash. So, I mean, I know that probably played a part in it. What does I that mean? People kids for make, cash. Kids for cash. Well, some judges. Uh, took some kickbacks when we privatized our juvenile facilities out here, our juvenile detainment facilities. They were taking kickbacks to send kids there. They were getting so much per kid and getting more money per sentence because it's, it's – I mean it's money when it's privatized. And, uh, Is this the scandal that happened made. a few years ago where they were basically taking kids out of homes and putting them in um, foster parents, things like that? No, they were taking kids who did crimes that that weren't even worthy of anything more than a fine or maybe a, maybe three to six months probation, and they were sticking them in a juvenile prison for 
up to a few years and destroying their lives. And it was all for money, millions of dollars. Uh, even, you know, there's, there's a, a big construction firm called Miracle out here that, uh, that was involved in it. They were getting the, uh, they were getting the contracts to build it and they were getting kickbacks and the judges were getting money for sending the kids into prisons, into these privatized prisons. These privately owned prisons were kicking them back money to give them heavier sentences and rather than, you know, release them on their own reconnaissance or, you know, release them on, you know, probation, they were putting them in jail because they were getting paid for it. Well, that's a very common problem in America now. So many of the prisons are privatized and they're making money off of it. We have more people incarcerated in America than uh, – I know it's more than China. I can't recall if it's more than everyone in the world. Well, it's just like you know, you got to follow the money, like the war on drugs. Why? Why has it been so hard to get marijuana legal? As because you know the the things that law enforcement can take from you and keep is a lot of money. Like if they find a hundred thousand dollars in your place when you have some marijuana, like that's that's pretty attractive. I mean, you know, with with marijuana dealers, I mean, it's probably more like four or five grand, but some of that's going into a cop's pocket in a lot of places. Maybe not all of them. Some modest cops, but they're able to take your your BMW and keep that. I mean, it's just, it's the same thing everywhere with money. It's I mean that's that's what leads to leads to the corruption and leads to the way a lot of these laws go and a, and a lot of a lot of things go in American life. As far as the police go, it's getting noticed because there's even a a, a page called Cop Block I see now popping up all over the place on people's Facebook profiles. It's getting noticed that, that some dirty things are going on. Um, I don't know if anything's being done about it, but at least it's being pointed out. Yeah, I, I know that a lot of the people that I talk to are, are pretty angry about it, and they're not taking it as much. I know that my uh, my demeanor with the police has been different. You mean the way so, they've been treating you? The way I've been treating them. <laughs> I, uh, you know, like I'm I'm not I'm not the guy, and. Uh, yeah, I mean, I've 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 done some interesting things. I mean, I was uh, I I did repo out in Chicago, Illinois, where uh, where I went into the projects and collected things. I ripped them right out of people's houses, you know, and uh, and I've had some some interesting uh, run-ins with the police. And I mean, they try to bully me, and and I don't bully. I I don't. I've had. Uh, I've had AK-47s pointed at me in people's homes in the inner city out near Philadelphia. You know, I've had people threaten to put a bullet in the back of my head, you know, in a short period of time. And and I just, you know, and I was still walking out with their TV. And, you know, the police, it's the same way. They're not going to intimidate me. I mean, if you if you got a case and you want to put me in jail, well, maybe I won't be able to fight that and I'll have to sit in the clink for a little while. But damn, if you're going to talk to me that way. <laughs> It sounds like what you just described to me, you're seeing the uh, collapse of our society. You've already seen some of that with your very eyes. Yeah, and I'm just, I'm just afraid that there's, there's not enough strength to take care of it before that final straw drops. <laughs> well, uh, we're winding down to our hour here. Is there anything else you want to get out about your book? Uh, what's the title of the book? I'm not even sure if we said that. You know, I'm working with Project Faust right now. And you could find it. I have a, a Facebook page that you can like, Project Faust. I'm actually doing a, uh, I'm doing a blog now on Tumblr that you could find it. It's uh, 
It's Project Faust 1976. So you could find some excerpts from the book there and, uh, you know, just uh, a running dialogue between myself and the people who like the page. So um, I'd appreciate the likes. It'll help uh, build up, you know, the book and hopefully get people ready for it. Hopefully there'll be some people standing in line for it once it's finished and it's in print. How about your music? Do you have any uh, plans for that? I was actually I was actually thinking about going and recording another album that was uh, that was more political and more in tune with what I'm doing with the book and possibly even releasing something with the book. Trying to tie them both together. Tie them both together, yeah. Like that song change that I brought up. I mean, that's coming from the '90s, but I would love to redo that song and bring it back because it's it's so timely now, and uh, and so much. So much of what I feel can come out in music. I think there would be a great companion, and and I think it might actually bring back some of that some of that feel that the '90s had. Maybe just in a small way. I mean, I don't I don't have any uh, any illusions that I could actually be a Kurt Cobain, but you know, maybe in my small way, I could pay homage to him. Well, I've noticed, for instance, that just because something was written a little while ago doesn't mean it's not relevant to today. I've actually gone back and rewatched some uh, Bill Hicks material. And I believe he passed away in 94, so anything I would have been watching would have been pre-94. And the things he's saying are so applicable to today. I don't think that just because you wrote a song in the 90s doesn't mean it couldn't be tweaked a little bit and be relevant today. Some of us saw a little more a little sooner. I think that's what a lot of it is. You know, uh, Mm -hmm. creative people are very often visionaries. You kind of just put it together in your head and go, yeah, I I, I think these things might just come about yeah even when you don't know exactly what it is uh especially with music you kind of that that feeling that you get just that just that knowing in your head something you can't describe in words you can kind of say it in a poetic way through the musical you know the musical expression no i totally relate to that because i'm a songwriter as well and sometimes you just tap into something and you may not even realize what it is you're tapping into and then you realize sometime later like wow i i was hitting onto something there and i didn't even realize it Absolutely. Is there any other contact information you'd like to give out, Scott? Uh, well, right now, I mean, that's pretty much what I'm going with right now. I'll be, uh, I'll be putting up another music page pretty soon, I'm sure, but I'll tie it in with Project Faust. So everything will uh, – that, that's going to be my starting point for now is the Project Faust page. Awesome. Well, it's been great talking to you, Scott. We'll, uh, we'll catch up with you again soon, I'm sure. It's a very interesting conversation. I think we have a lot more we could discuss. Absolutely. I appreciate you having me on. You're welcome, man. Have a great night. You too. That's it, ladies and gentlemen. This has been Secrets of Saturn. We'll talk to you soon.